0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, the book of Hosea, chapters two and three. To this point in Hosea, we have seen God, through the word that is speaking to Hosea, outline how he's going to deal with Israel, meaning the Northern Kingdom, as a result of their long-term idolatry and their unfaithfulness to him that is now thoroughly embedded in their society. And yet, at regular intervals, he says that after a long time has passed, his anger with Israel will pass, and he will restore them to their own land and to peace. With him, In other words, it's a bit like punishing your child for their wrongdoing, but at the same time reminding them that you love them and that this discipline they are experiencing hasn't become a permanent condition. It's temporary, it's meant to serve a purpose, to instruct and to correct. You know, it's also instinctive, I think, in our human nature, simply a way that we're wired, that paying a price for our wrongdoing inherently allows us to feel that we have experienced justice and that we have indeed paid a just price for our guilt. So many ways release happens. And once that price is paid, it is freeing to our spirit, and there is this sense that our wrongdoing and its consequences are behind us, and now we have liberty to move on. Jehovah's intent is for Israel to understand what a a drastic mistake they have made in their wrongdoing, which is spoken of in terms of breaking their covenant with him, and to then learn from it. And he carefully explains to them precisely what they have done so they don't have to guess, they don't have to wonder why catastrophe is going to come upon them. And he uses this strange life drama of Hosea and Gomer to demonstrate it all. God wants Israel to repent and then to return to him with the intent of once again Faithfully keeping the terms of the covenant of Moses. Now we must never lose sight of one overriding characteristic of our relationship with God. The way we show love to Him is through our obedience. Obedience is God's love language. Now in chapter 2, verse 16. The just judge announces his sentence upon Israel, that's Gomer, and amazingly that sentence is that he is going to restore Israel to himself. And since this is being explained in a very visible, tangible life drama in the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, the language used. Involves love and broken relationships and adultery and the birth of children and then reconciliation. These are to be equated to the spiritual reality of God's undying love for his Hebrew people, their breaking of the covenant of Moses, their committing idolatry by melding in the worship of other gods the Baal God system, with their worship of Jehovah, being sent away and into seclusion that was a rather actually typical result for a woman who was found to be unfaithful to her husband, and then being wooed to come back to God after they have experienced the just fruits of their unfaithfulness. So, to be clear, Hosea is not writing a history. He's writing a prophecy. What he is saying is going to happen, but had not yet happened. And in fact, by the end of his book, the exile of Israel had yet to occur. What we also need to understand is that long before Hosea, this set of circumstances was contemplated and spoken by God of what would happen if Israel were to break the newly minted covenant that God had made with Israel, with Moses as the mediator. Therefore what is about to happen to Israel was announced to their forefathers long ago while they were still wandering in the wilderness. And I think it is worth our while to read about that in the Torah, so open your Bibles Turn them to Deuteronomy Chapter Four. Deuteronomy Chapter Four. We're going to read verses one through thirty one. Deuteronomy Chapter Four. Now listen, Israel, to the laws and rulings I am teaching you in order to follow them, so that you will live. Then you will go in and take possession of the land that Adonai the God of your fathers is giving to you. In order to obey the commandments of Adonai your God which I am giving you, you do not add to what I am saying and do not subtract from it. You saw with your own eyes what Adonai did at Baal Peor that Adonai destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal Peor. But you who stuck with Adonai your God are still alive today, every one of you. Look, I have taught you laws and rulings, just as Adonai my God ordered me, so that you can behave accordingly in the land where you are going going in uh, in order to take possession of it. Therefore observe them, follow them. For then all peoples will see you as having wisdom, understanding. When they hear all of these laws, they will say, Well, this great nation is surely a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God as close to them as Adonai our God is whenever we call on Him? What great nation is there that has laws and rulings as just as this entire Torah which I am setting before you today. Only be careful. Watch yourselves diligently as long as you live, so that you won't forget what you saw with your own eyes, so that these things won't vanish from your hearts. Rather, make them known to your children and grandchildren. The day you stood before Adonai your God at Horeb, when Adonai said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will make them hear my very words, so that they will learn to hold me in awe as long as they live on earth, so that they will teach their children. You approached, and you stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain blazed with fire to the heart of heaven, with darkness, clouds, and thick mist. Then added, I spoke to you from out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no shape. There was only a voice. He proclaimed his covenant to you, which he ordered you to obey the ten words. And he wrote them on two stone tablets, and at that time Adonai ordered me to teach you laws and rulings so that you would live by them in the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. Therefore watch out for yourselves. Since you did not see a shape of any kind in the day Adonai spoke to you in Horeb from the fire, do not become corrupt and make yourselves a carved image having the shape of any figure, not a representation of a human being, male or female, or a representation of any animal on earth, or a representation of any bird that flies in the air, or a representation of anything that creeps along the ground, or a representation of any fish in the water below the shoreline. For the same reason, do not look up at the sky, at the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything in the sky, and be drawn away to worship and to serve them. Adonai your God has allotted these to all the peoples under the entire sky. No, you Adonai has taken and brought out of the smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of inheritance for him, as you are today. But Adonai was angry with me on account of you, and swore that I would not cross the Jordan And go into that good land which Adonai your God is giving to you to inherit rather i must die in this land not cross the Jordan but you are to cross and take possession of that good land now watch out for yourselves so that you won't forget the covenant of Adonai your God which he made with you he made and and make yourself some kind of a carved image or representation of anything forbidden to you by Adonai your God For Adonai your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you have had children and grandchildren and lived a long time in the land, become corrupt and made a carved image, a representation of something, and thus done what is evil in the sight of Adonai your God and provoked him, I call on the sky and the earth to witness against you today that you will quickly disappear from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days there, but be completely destroyed. Adonai will scatter you among the peoples, and among the nations to which Adonai will lead you away. You will be left few in number. There you will serve gods, which are the product of human hands, made of wood and stone, which can't see, hear, eat, or smell. However, from there you will seek Adonai your God, and you will find Him, if you search after Him with all your heart and being. In your distress, when all these things have come upon you, in the acharet Hayim, the world to come, you will return to Adonai your God and listen to what He says. For Adonai your God is a merciful God, He will not fail you, destroy you, or forget the covenant with your ancestors which he swore to them." What we find in Deuteronomy 4, especially verse 31, is that the mercy God will have upon Israel to eventually restore them to himself is not because of the covenant of Moses, but rather because of the promise he made in an even more ancient covenant that was given to the forefathers, as he says here, the forefathers of those who were the refugees from Egypt. What covenant was that? Covenant of Abraham. See, there's an important lesson here that has been all but lost in the church. It is that every covenant God has ever made remains intact and operative, and it will be so until the current heavens and earth pass away and are replaced with a new creation. Each new covenant that has come along over the ages was not a replacement for the previous one. It was simply another added in a series of covenants each enacted for a different purpose. It was an additive, not a reductive process. Thus, as concerns the Christian Church, whatever you take the New Covenant to be precisely, it certainly didn't replace the one or ones that came before it. The New Covenant did not replace the Covenant of Moses any more than the covenant of Moses replaced the covenant of Abraham, nor did the covenant of Abraham replace the covenant of Noah. To be clear, the punishment Israel is about to face in their exile from their land is a result of breaking breaking the terms of the covenant of Moses. But Their eventual restoration to the land and to their God is the result of God's promise in the covenant of Abraham. Well, let's read the final verses now of Hosea chapter 2. So open your Bibles back up again, this time to Hosea chapter 2. We'll start reading at verse 16. Hosea chapter 2, starting at verse 16. But now I'm going to woo her. I will bring her out to the desert, and I will speak to her heart. I will give her her vineyards from there, and the Akhor Valley as a gateway to hope. She will respond there as she did when she was young, as she did when she came up from Egypt. On that day, says Adonai, you will call me Ishi. You will no longer call me Baalie. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will never again be mentioned by name. And when that day comes, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals, the birds in the air and the creeping things of the earth. I will break bow and sword, sweep battle from the land, and make them lie down securely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in grace, and in compassion and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know Adonai. And when that day comes, I will answer, says Adonai, I will answer the sky, and it will answer the earth. The earth will answer the corn, wine, and oil, and they will answer Jezreel. I will sow her for me in the land, I will have pity on Lo-Ruchmah, I will say to Lo-Ami, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Now, the complete Jewish Bible translation of verse 16 is not a particularly good one. It obscures some important words. Here's a better one, the NAS version. Therefore behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Now, To behold means to pay special attention to what follows, because whatever it is It's important, even game-changing. The next most important words immediately follow, behold, and they are, I will, I will. Now The idea is that what comes next uh, and happens is due to the direct intervention of God, in science this is called cause and effect. So the cause of what is about to be declared is Jehovah. The effect is that God is going to allure her. Some Bibles say woo her, some say entice, one even says speak coaxingly to her, another seduce. Now The Hebrew word is "patah," and it can mean pretty much any of these suggested translations. The range of English words used in the various Bible versions come about because of the various ways translators choose to characterize this entire story of Hosea and Gomer. The most typical characterization is of this intense romance that is even erotic. The wife somehow goes astray into prostitution and now a prisoner of her decision, she's regretful. Then her husband, who adores her, chases after her, rescues her from her now terrible condition, forgives her, carries her back into his home, once, a make, once again making it their home. I think this characterization goes a bit too far. It more gets into the popular Hollywood film motif of a man rescuing a prostitute from her preferred profession and turning her into a respectable woman, all a la Pretty Woman. That is, such a romantic view removes the entire story from the realities of the 8th century BC. And it all happens within this ancient Hebrew culture. More, it is a matter of restoring favor and then coaxing Israel to leave behind a very long time of residing in the many Gentile nations to which they were scattered, and then finally to come back home where they belong. Coaxing it will take. I mean, think about it. After centuries of being away from their own land, Wherever the many remnants of Israel might be, will be the only home. It will be the only culture these people will have ever known for many generations. An interesting, and I think a bit confusing part of this verse is when it says next that God is going to allure her into the wilderness. Why would he take her into the wilderness? So often we think of the wilderness as a place of barrenness and punishment and yet that cannot be the meaning because God says that in the wilderness He is going to speak kindly to her. Here the characterization of the wilderness is intended to recall when Israel had been happily rescued from Egypt and then given God's covenant and then of the generally faithful time of obedience and provision that Israel experienced in their original wilderness journey to the Promised Land. So this return from exile is likened to a kind of repeat of the Exodus event in that Israel will be brought back by an act of God to the Promised Land as God's redeemed people. The time for exile and discipline is over. The time for restoration has arrived. Now, Verse 17 says that from there, from the wilderness, Israel will be given her vineyards. That is, just as Israel was promised vineyards while she was still trekking in the Exodus wilderness, so likewise when Israel is finally wooed back home Already God will have ordained and set aside vineyards for His returning people, his returning wife, symbolically speaking. Now, the mention of the Akhor Valley as a gateway to hope is part of that promise, and what it is, it's a play on words. It's a play on words. The Akhor Valley is an actual place in Israel. It's just located a few miles north of Jericho. Akhor is Hebrew for trouble or affliction. So what had been the valley of trouble and affliction for Israel will become divinely transformed to the valley of hope. And the final part of this verse then cements the connection between what God plans to do for Israel with their former escape from Egypt, and referring to the wilderness experience as when she was in her youth means that immediately after God had formed the covenant relationship with Israel, it was as though she was the equivalent of a toddler that was just beginning to learn God's ways. I mean, think of it this way. How do we as parents treat a toddler, do we expect as much from the very young as we do from the older children or from mature adults? Thus, we don't demand much precision of obedience or nuance or understanding from the, from the young, although we demand much more of the more mature. God in some ways is going to be starting all over again. With Israel, They are going to be returned to the land without much knowledge of God or His ways, and so they will have to be re-educated, so to speak. Thus, the Lord is going to be loving and gentle and patient on Israel's journey towards restoration. Yet, in time, Israel will be expected to toe the mark and properly obey the covenant of Moses now what i just described is a biblically defined god pattern that we need to just have hammered into our memories god will not overload us with expectations and demands when we first come to know him easy at first then Gradually, with more teaching, the expectations upon us rise until they finally reach the summit of full understanding of God's covenants and along with it full obedience. And with that bit of information, now I want us to detour for just a minute to address one of the most misunderstood sections of the New Testament that has led so many Christians into some false conceptions of what God's expectations of us actually are. In Acts 15, <clears throat> verses 13-20, through 20, we read this, Yaakov broke the silence to reply, Brothers, he said, hear what I have to say. Shimon has told in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern for taking from among the Goying, from among the Gentile nations, a people to bear his name. And the words of the prophets are in complete harmony with this. For it is written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the LORD, that is, all the Gentiles who have been called by my name. It says Adonai, who is doing these things. All this has been known for ages. Therefore my opinion is, we shouldn't put obstacles in the way of the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them, abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what strangled from blood. You get the tone of this now? The Bible portion that I just read is known as the Jerusalem Council. Notice how Yaakov, Yaakov, usually called James, um, by Christians, directly refers to the prophets predicting that David's tent will be rebuilt and restored. David's tent meant that his dynasty would somehow divinely be restored and resurrected, and the one who will occupy the throne Will rule over a restored kingdom of Israel. And this mysterious person from David's line was thought to be the Messiah. And their restoration was still future for them because Israel at this time, the ten tribes, well, they were still in exile. Therefore, since it was believed by James that his half brother Jesus was the Messiah, And yet the kingdom hadn't been restored, then however this was to come about, it was certainly still in the future. And in making a comparison to this very well-known reality to the Jews, James says that in this same way Gentiles, who are but toddlers in their learning about the God of Israel and salvation in Yeshua, shouldn't immediately have all the Torah requirements placed upon them as though they were like the Hebrews that had been the covenant people for centuries. Can you see how well this concept connects to the thought of Hosea 2.17? How this God pattern it never changes. The Gentiles who accept Christ will be young, like Israel was young out in the wilderness. This toddler, that's my word, will have only basic and fairly easy to do requirements placed upon them for the time being, because that's about the best that can be expected at such an early stage of their development. But it goes without saying. That you cannot become part of the covenant people and not eventually be expected to mature and to fully obey the covenant just as does Israel. Well, back to Hosea, verse 18 begins with the words on that day. Now, that day is the common term in the Old Testament that is approximately equivalent to the day of the Lord. It's a term that indicates the end times, the latter days. It doesn't refer to a precise date, not a single day. You can't circle it on a calendar. It's speaking more of an era. So now we understand that when this wooing home and restoration of Israel occurs, it will be far into the future from Hosea's time and is essentially what modern Christianity would call an end times prophecy. Now I want to also use this to demonstrate something else. The verse says, on that day says the Lord, or in the complete Jewish Bible says Adonai. This is not what the original Hebrew Scripture actually says. It says literally, on that day, says Yehovah. Over 6,000 times in the Old Testament we read God's name Yehovah in the Hebrew. But in our English Bibles, we'd be lucky to find it ten times. All other times, the words Lord or God are substituted. Why would translators do something like that? Now The claim is that it has to do with the Jews ceasing to say or write God's name starting around the late 4th century B.C. That's difficult to buy, since Christianity long ago separated itself from anything Jewish. So why would Gentile Christians remove What is clearly there God's name and instead insert the rather generic term Lord. It is simply a Christian tradition to do it this way, which no doubt stems from not wanting to acknowledge God's formal name. Most often to Christians the term Lord is meant as Jesus Christ, and thus, when we see the word Lord, even in the Old Testament, it can create an inference to Christ, or at best make the meaning kind of murky. Beginning with the Roman Church of the fourth century, institutional Gentile Christianity has attempted to relegate the Father, Yehovah, to an association with a people of the past. So, this God of the past and the people of the past have faded away to obscurity and given way to Jesus and the Christian Church. Now, this erroneous belief greatly affects the way we read and we understand the Bible. Well, next to there are some interesting words that many Bible interpreters have for well over a century claimed are not original. But rather, are a much later addition called a gloss, even though the oldest Bible manuscripts contain these words. <laughs> so the only hard evidence we have actually disproves the claim. And those words are you shall call me Ishi, and no longer will you call me Bailey. Now, some, like the complete Jewish Bible, will go on to say in brackets that Bailey means my master. Now, technically, it is true that baali can mean, and baali simply is plural of baal. Okay. It is true that baali can mean my master, but much more commonly it means my lord. Ishi means husband in Hebrew. So the verse, more literally translated to English, is. You will call me husband, and you will no longer call me my lord. That's how it translates. So let's put this verse back together as it's originally given to us. And it will come about on that day, says Jehovah, that you will call me husband, and you, no long, you will no longer call me my lord. Hmm. In fact, the scholarly Young's Literal Translation Bible says exactly that. So today, just like in the 8th century BC, the term Lord as it refers to a god can be misused. For us it's not a misuse that confuses the pagan with the biblical, but rather it's a misuse That can confuse between two persons of God, the Father and the Son. Now, the intent of this odd statement from God is to say that in the future, all this confusion between He as Israel's legitimate God versus Baal and the illegitimate Baal God system will come to an end. Well, does anyone in this world still worship Baal? Especially the 21st century Israelites in whatever nation they might reside in this day and time. The point is not the name of the pagan God, it's the syncretism between the pagan and the biblical. Now, I've spent much time in scores of lessons in Torah class explaining a hard reality it is that from their earliest beginnings the Hebrews have struggled with idolatry as they tended to introduce other gods into their Hebrew faith and at the same time moved steadily to accept much man-made doctrine and tradition that doesn't accurately reflect the truth of the Holy Scriptures. Christianity's done the same. This illicit mixing has gone on for so many centuries that adherents of both Judaism and Christianity assume that the way we practice our faith must be well must be correct. We've done it this way for so long. So we we react quite defensively when we're challenged about it. Therefore, no matter how many pagan elements have obviously been woven in over the centuries, these elements have, as I have been informed on several occasions, been baptized by Jesus. So it's okay. Not according to God, is it okay? Well, when God finally determines the time for Israel to return home is here. he will begin to teach them who he is and unconfuse them if that's a word and we can be certain that this will be a long process because right now in the early part of the 21st century the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom are returning home to the reborn nation of Israel in ever increasing numbers But either paganism or atheism during their long exile has replaced a pure worship. So this cleansing and and restoration are nowhere near complete. Even so, it has begun. And since it has begun, it would seem that we have, therefore, entered into what this verse describes as on that day. Now, verse 20 explains the new and restored conditions that Israel will operate under. God will make a covenant with Israel that establishes a kind of peace between them and the animal kingdom. Now, this is in response to what God spoke of earlier in order to punish Israel. In Hosea 2:14 he said, "I will ravage her vines and fig trees of which she says, these are my wages that my lovers have given me. But I will turn them into a forest and wild animals will eat them." In verse 14, Jehovah said he would turn the animal kingdom into an enemy of Israel that would devour what forest and field normally provided. So restoration includes a resumption of the divine harmony with nature that had worked in Israel's favor for so long. Saying that God will break bow and sword means the end of war in the Holy Land. And with the end of war, Israel will now be able to rest securely. So, this era ends the centuries long strife between Israel and nature and between Israel and the Gentile world. That's the essence of it. Now, when the Bible speaks of covenant making, it is either an agreement between humans or, in Israel's case, it can be an agreement between God and his chosen people. Here, however, Much like with Noah's covenant that promises that nature won't flood the earth and destroy all human life ever again, so God makes a covenant with certain parts of His creation. The covenant represents a reversal of the curses that God has been inflicting upon Israel, the curses spelled out in Deuteronomy and in this prophecy of Hosea. Well, verses 21 and 22, take a look at them. Verses 21 and 22 operate together, and they are really a single unified statement, not two, as the verse numbering system makes it appear. These statements are once again couched in symbolic marriage terms in order to keep within the motif of the playing out of the Hosea Gomer life drama. Now we're told that God will betroth Israel to himself and this will be a forever arrangement. Now the basis of this betrothal the underlying terms of the symbolic marriage contract if you would will be righteousness, judgment, in grace and in compassion. Or in Hebrew, sedek, mishpat, hased and Ruchmah. Verse 22 adds to this betrothal basis faithfulness, or in Hebrew, emunah. Now, while Hosea and Gomer's betrothal was real, it was literal, God's betrothal to Israel is figurative, and it's only meant to draw an illustration to help our understanding of it. Hosea's Hebrew readers would have understood this a little better than we do. Okay? It is common in modern times to equate betrothal with engagement. Biblically, there is no such thing as engagement. It's a Western concept. Engagement is but a statement of intent that is not binding. Betrothal was not only binding, it had almost all the legal authority of marriage. Once a betrothal took place, a marriage contract was drawn up, it was agreed to by groom and by the bride's father, a dowry price was paid, and then typically for around 30 days the bride would continue to live with her father, then at an agreed time the father would deliver his daughter to her new husband and then transfer authority over her to the husband. The final step to sealing the marriage was consummation. Well, the final words of verse 22 add one more element of restoration, and it's a, another blessing. It says, And you shall know Adonai, or God or the Lord, depending on your version, but what it really says is Yehovah. The constant drumbeat, listen to me, the constant drumbeat of repeating God's name, what did I tell you how many times? Six thousand times in the Old Testament. This constant drumbeat of repeating God's name, this is not mysterious. It was done because in the ancient world of lots of gods, each having a name, Israel's God is only identifiable by name, thus there need be no guesswork about who is Israel's God. He is the only God with the name Well, Verses 23 and 24 represent another unified thought that never should have been separated with verse numbers. These words can be hard to understand, especially when the word answer is chosen as a translation for the Hebrew word anah. Now, while answer is correct, the word that makes more sense in modern English is respond. Respond. For instance, to answer a threat means to respond to a threat. So here God is responding to this betrothal by once again giving Israel produce. From orchard and vine and field. Now we notice this progression of heavens, meaning the sky, earth, meaning the soil, and then finally, grain, wine, and oil. Now keep in mind that God is wooing Israel back from the Baal gods that were wrongly thanked for rain, fertility, and for food. So what is being pictured here is the entire cycle of agriculture with God as its cause. Now also the mention of Jezreel is turned on its head. Jezreel was used earlier in Hosea to remind Israel of the murder and bloodshed that took place in the city of Jezreel. Upon this future restoration, Jezreel reassumes its meaning of a blessing, God sows. So the climax of this long story of redemption and restoration for Israel in verse 25 is that the symbolic names for Hosea and Gomer's children are also now turned on their heads. Jezreel now means God sows in a positive sense. God will now have pity upon those whom he refused to have pity, Lo Ruchmah becomes Ruchmah, and those he considers not his people, Lo Ami, will now be considered his people once again, Ami. This entire scenario of curse that eventually leads to restoration and redemption for Israel appears in others of the prophets. There's no better example than the last few verses of Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm just going to read to you from verses 21 through 28 of Ezekiel chapter 37. Then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among the nations where they've gone, and gather them from every side, and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations. They will never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things, any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the places where they have been living and sinning. I will cleanse them so that they will be my people and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and all of them will have one shepherd, and they will live by My rulings and keep and observe My regulations. They will live in the land I gave to Jacob my servant, where your ancestors lived. They will live there, they, their children, and their grandchildren, forever, and David my servant will be their leader forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers, and set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The nations will know that I am Adonai, who sets Israel apart as holy, when my sanctuary is with them forever." Gentile Christians understand that your future is entirely wrapped up in Israel's future. If God is done with Israel, He's done with you. Our good fortune is that God is done with neither. He has great things prepared for all of us who worship Him in love and in truth, but these good things are still ahead of us. They're not behind us. Let's move on to Hosea chapter 3. Open your Bibles back up again to Hosea chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter. Hosea chapter 3. Adonai said to me, go once more and show love to this wife of yours who has been loved by her boyfriend to this adulteress, just as Adonai loves the people of Israel, even though they turn to other gods and love the raisin cakes offered to them. So I bought her back for myself with 15 pieces of silver and 8 bushels of barley, and then I told her, you are to remain in seclusion for a long time and be mine. You're not to be a prostitute. You're not to be with any other man. And I won't come in to have sex with you either. For the people of Israel are going to be in seclusion for a long time without a king, prince, sacrifice, standing stone, ritual vest, or household gods. And afterwards, the people of Israel will repent and seek Adonai, their God, and David, their king. They will come trembling to Adonai and his goodness in the Acharet HaYamim, the world to come. After chapter one, we've heard no more of the name Gomer. Now, because of the way chapter two reads, there's no ambiguity that the woman and wife remain as Gomer, but chapter three presents a problem. The scene changes in a couple of important ways. First, the identity of the woman becomes more ambiguous, and second is that we have Hosea speaking now in the first person, I, me. This leads to all kinds of conjecture, all of which is opinion and none of it can be proved. Verse 1 opens with an instruction from Jehovah, and once again Bible translators simply ignore God's name that is plainly written in the original scriptures and instead substitute the word Lord, or as in the complete Jewish Bible, Adonai, which is just Hebrew for Lord. Jehovah's instruction is to Hosea and it is this, he says to him, Go again and love a woman. Now the complete Jewish Bible, I'm afraid, takes many liberties with this verse and assumes much that it isn't actually written there. By suggesting that it should read, Adonai said to me, Go once more and show love to this wife of yours. Now, adding the words this and of yours is how the editor chooses to explain their viewpoint. Now, I happen to agree with this viewpoint, but I can't hold with adding words that aren't there to justify it. The word that most Bibles will translate as, as woman, show love to a woman, is Ishisha and it can mean either woman or wife. Now, Notice the relationship. It is automatically assumed that a wife is a woman and that a woman will become a wife. And by assuming that the article before the word woman is a and not the, then it makes identifying this woman a bit more challenging. So is this still Gomer? If not, who else could it be? There is nothing that directly suggests that a second woman is contemplated. The verse says outright this woman is committing adultery, something that Gomer is likened to be doing symbolically. In the earlier chapters. Now, see, look, the act of adultery can only happen within the bounds of marriage. This unnamed woman that begins this chapter can't commit adultery if she isn't already married. So, while we, can, we cannot say with 100% certainty that this woman is Gomer, it's probably better to demand evidence that it is somebody else rather than the other way around. For our study I am going to assume she is Gomer because I am convinced that is who she is. Here is the thing, as we discussed in an earlier lesson, too many Bible interpreters want to create a detailed biography for Hosea that just isn't there. The issue at hand is not the details of Hosea's life. The issue is the meaning of the symbolism. So it's all about the woman's situation, her predicament, that's the point. Because that's what the symbolism is all about. Gomer the woman equates to Israel. Now, Continuing, the verse says that this woman Hosea is to love, has a boyfriend, or a lover, or a paramour, depending on how one wants to translate the Hebrew word reah. Now, clearly, this woman is committing adultery with this reah. That second half of verse 1 explains exactly what this new act of Hosea, as as regards this woman, is supposed to symbolize. Hosea 3. 2nd half of verse 1, just as Adonai loves the people of Israel, even though they turn to other gods and love their raisin cakes. So Hosea is doing this act as a symbolic imitation of God loving the people of Israel, of people who are committing adultery with other gods. Adultery among humans is therefore equated to idolatry as concerns Israel's behavior towards God. Adultery is unfaithfulness in what is supposed to be an exclusive relationship between a husband and wife. So idolatry is unfaithfulness in what is supposed to be an exclusive relationship between God and His people. As Douglas Stewart so well points out in his commentary on Hosea, Jehovah's love for Israel is noble, unselfish, generous, and protective. God's love for its, uh, rather, God's, Israel's love for its raisin cakes and the adulteress's love for evil are selfish, indulgent, and pleasure oriented. Gomer does not deserve Hosea's love just as Israel doesn't deserve God's love. Nonetheless, God gives her that love. And even in Israel's coming exile, that love never diminishes. Therefore in verse 2 we have a price being paid for the restoration of the adulteress, the idolaters, Israel, but the price is not being paid by the unfaithful partner, but rather by the faithful one. Here we have another God pattern. Fellow unfaithful ones, neither have we paid the price for our restoration. It is the faithful one we have sinned against who makes that payment on our behalf. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but shall have everlasting life. There's always been much debate and conjecture about this price that Hosea paid. Fifteen shekels of silver, eight bushels of barley. Who did he pay the money to? Some Bible commentators say it was to the man that was essentially her pimp. Others say she'd become a slave, so she was purchased back from her master for that sum. Yet others say that she was living with this boyfriend, so it was kind of a bribe to get him to let her go. I can't go along with any of these suggestions, although it's not possible to rule any of them out. Rather, I see this payment to no one in particular as kind of a a second bride price that represents restoration of marriage into a new condition. Gomer was already Hosea's wife. Now, with this new bride price, she is symbolic of a renewed wife. And I think this fits with the idea of God paying a bride price as symbolic of Israel that was already his wife, symbolically, but will in time become a renewed wife, a renewed Israel. See, It is important to keep at the forefront of our minds that this entire story is all about creating symbolism to send a message. Thus, we must not get focused on tiny details. We should not try to see this within the precise bounds of how Hebrew marriage works and so on. It is quite similar. This whole symbolic series of words is quite similar to how believers are characterized as being new creations. Well, we are in a sense certainly not in every sense. And probably a better way to characterize that meaning is that we are renewed creations. The bottom line is that Hosea recovered and restored his wife Gomer from her adulterous condition and it cost him to do it. And this is symbolic of God paying a price to recover and restore Israel when the time comes. Okay, we'll begin in verse 3 next time we meet.